every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. Welcome to a brand new week of Money Talk from me, Peter Lewis. It's Monday, the 15th of January, 2024. This is the program that brings you expert discussion on some of Asia's leading business and finance stories each weekday morning. And thank you for making us one of the top 15 most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong, according to statistics from Podstatus. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Taiwanese voters have chosen by a comfortable margin the pro-sovereignty Democratic Progressive Party's William Lai as their president in a historic election. Mr Lai won an unprecedented third consecutive presidential term for his party, winning 40% of the vote. Ho Yi from the Kuomintang, the largest opposition party, had 33% of the vote, and Ko Wendei from the smaller Taiwan People's Party attracted 26%. However, the DPP lost its majority in the island's legislature, with the opposition gaining ground, though no one party won the 57 seats needed to control parliament. China's exports rose more than expected in December, but failed to offset an overall decline in 2023 amid a weakening global trade environment. Exports for all of 2023 were 3.4 trillion US dollars, down 4.6% from 2022, in the first annual drop since 2016. Exports to the United States endured the steepest plunge in nearly 30 years, with total shipments falling by 13.1% compared to a year earlier. China's consumer price index recorded a softer fall than expected in December. The country recorded an inflation rate of minus 0.3% compared with half a percent in November, and also a smaller fall compared with the minus 0.4% expected by economists. Still, China's consumer prices fell for a third straight month, marking their longest streets of decline since 2009. US wholesale inflation declined unexpectedly in December in a sign that price pressures are moderating after a hotter-than-expected consumer price growth report for the same month released earlier last week. The producer price index, a leading indicator of inflation, decreased by minus 0.1% last month, surpassing economists' expectations for a 0.1% increase. Core PPI, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, remained flat last month. We have a longer show than normal today. First up, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment, to discuss today's top business headlines. Providing a view from mainland China will be Yan'an Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group. And with an update on the Taiwan election will be Ross Feingold, Director at Cyrus Consulting Research in Taipei. And if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. US stocks ended the week higher, making minor gains on Friday. The S&P 500 added 0.0 added 1.8% last week after rising less than 0.1% on Friday to 4,784, and the index is a third of a percent away from reaching the record high it achieved in January 2022. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite was just above flat on Friday at 14,973, gaining 3.1% across the five sessions. The Dow lost 118 points, or a third of a percent, to close at 37,593. And for the week, the Dow climbed a third of a percent. 
U.S. Treasuries rallied as an unexpected decline in U.S. wholesale prices in December boosted traders' hopes for interest rate cuts in the first half of the year. The yield on the two-year notes fell 11 basis points to 4.15%, its lowest level since May. The US dollar index was unchanged over the week. The Japanese yen saw gains of a third of a percent, ending the week at 144.9 against the dollar. On the mainland, the dollar was 0.4% firmer against the Chinese yuan over the week at 7.1665 renminbi to the dollar. Gold ended Friday 1% firmer at $2,049 an ounce for a weekly gain of 0.2%. The price of oil increased on Friday after the US and UK launched military strikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen. Brent crude oil climbed 1.1% to settle Friday at $78.29 a barrel. And for the week, the international benchmark was down 0.6%. Bitcoin trading volumes surged Thursday and Friday after the first 11 US exchange-traded funds offering direct exposure to the world's largest cryptocurrency made a long-awaited debut on stock exchanges. Bitcoin ended Friday 7% lower and was down 1.4% for the week. Asia-Pacific markets fell Friday, but Japanese stocks bucked the trend to extend their record rally. The Nikkei advanced 1.5% to close at a new 33-year high of 35,577, and it saw gains for the week of 6.6%. And in India, the S&P BSE Sensex climbed 1.2% to close at an all-time high of 72,568 on Friday. Hong Kong stocks, though, logged a second week of declines in the market's worst start to a year since 2016. The Hang Seng Index fell 57 points, that's 0.4%, to 16,245 on Friday, increasing the weekly losses to 1.8%. On the mainland, the CSI 300 of the largest listed stocks in Shanghai and Shenzhen slipped 0.4% to the lowest level since February 2019, that's almost five years ago. This morning, the Hang Seng projected to open about 25 uh, 25 points firmer at around about 16,270. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Much to talk about this morning, so let's crack on with it and welcome our Monday morning guests. We have with us Alex Wong, Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And also joining us, John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. Morning to you, John. Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter. Now, Taiwanese voters have chosen by a comfortable margin the pro-sovereignty Democratic Progressive Party's William Lai as their president in a historic election, cementing a path that looks like it's increasingly divergent from China. Mr Lai won an unprecedented third consecutive term for his party. He won 40% of the vote. Ho Yuyi from the Gomintang, which is the largest opposition party, had 33% of the vote. Ko Dai from the smaller Taiwan People's Party attracted 26%. And it's the first time since Taiwan began holding free and direct presidential elections in 1996 that any party has held, held power beyond two four-year terms. 
However, the DPP lost its majority in the island's legislature, and it's uh, no one, although no one party won the 57 seats needed to control parliament. The DPP secured just 51 of the 113 seats in contention. The KMT won 52 seats, and the TPP secured eight seats, which may be critical to either party pushing through major legis- legislation. Alex, how, how have investors and markets, do you think, likely to react to this when trading gets started this morning? I think uh, would not be too much. Uh, this is a result that I think uh, people probably more or less expected, and and I think uh, because Taiwan is uh, so tilted towards the um, semiconductor manufacturing sector, so the index actually may not uh, uh may not change too much because I think uh, uh the domestic oriented company may may have some reaction, but I don't think that is enough to move the overall index. So um, basically, I think. Uh, uh, the market actually would not be met uh, too much. John, how do you think things are going to look this morning? Um, yes, uh, uh, well, as far as the market's probably not going to react very much. Uh, uh, as Alex said, it's pretty much as as expected. Um, but I think uh, it's it's probably pretty good news, really. There's, at least there's something in it, as it were, for for, for China. Um, while um, you know the the democratic. Uh, Will of the Taiwanese people is, is is still being being expressed. I, I think, uh, as I understand it, sort of domestic issues um, were also played a role in boosting the uh, boosting the vote for uh, the KMT in the uh, in the legislature. Um, so that's um, and 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 that you know, so stable, a, a reasonably stable government. Although I'm sure there'll be the usual heated rows in the in the uh, in the parliament. Um, but uh, on the whole, it's um, you know, it's it's a good result. I think. Does it change at all the trajectory of either um, China Taiwan relations or U.S. China relations as a result of this? Um, I would I would say not. Um, it it it's. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that the state of the Chinese economy, you know, tends to limit what they can do at this stage. I think, um, uh, yeah, I would, I would say it's um, very much the status quo. Mm. Um, so, so um, you know, Taiwan can continue to um, con- continue to move move along. Um, you know, and time time is on their side, as it were. I think. Mm. Alex, what, what do you think about that? Beijing cut all communications with Taiwan's government, didn't they, after the DPP came to power in 2016? Do you think China will change its approach now and accept William Lai's offer to open dialogue with uh, the Taiwanese government? I think uh, probably uh, they would um, they would have a less uh, 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 ties with Taiwan economically and probably also uh, dialogue-wise. I think... Uh, uh, Probably, uh, we, we although this is more more or less the status quo, but I think uh, uh, Chinese probably may may cut their their their, their ties, uh, economic ties with Taiwan more uh, in more areas. So that is uh, basically back for the Taiwan overall economy. But I think uh, this is more or less expected. So uh, and also people probably expect Chinese uh, its Chinese economy itself is uh, in a downturn. So more or less uh, we will see less uh, economic activities. Uh, already, so uh, that's that's what I think the market will expected. But for dialogue wise, I think uh, probably uh, uh, this would be getting a little bit worse. 
So you don't see any sign of compromise at all between Taiwan and China here. You just think it's going to continue along the same path and maybe get worse. Yeah, maybe getting a little bit worse, but I'm not too pessimistic. So probably uh, we would be going through like uh, we have been going through in the last eight years. So uh, basically more or less the same. Mm. John, what are your thoughts? Do you see any, any room for compromise at all here between the, uh, between the two sides? Because what China's done so far hasn't really worked out, has it? Sort of, it's tried yeah. uh, coercion, it's tried economic incentives, yeah. it's tried reducing economic ties, it's done all sorts of things, but none of them have really worked. Um, no, indeed. I, I think, think they may... Um you know they they they'll probably try and talk more with the with the the opposite well the um, the largest party in in the uh, in the parliament uh, namely KMT so presumably they'll have they'll have more contact with 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 those um, with those people rather than the actual uh, you know presidential president's office um and and i think the who the the person who's going to be um the speaker of the house i think that's also um that also seems to be an important issue if it's someone who's perceived to be you know reasonably china china friendly then that might help it, it might be a way won't it for them to bring in the um the, the third party there the um uh, the Taiwan People's Party and, and give them a senior position because they're going to need their votes, aren't they, to, to get anything done. So maybe yeah. that would then make them also have to take some responsibility for what goes on. Yeah, and the president's already said he's going to he's going to invite some people from the opposition parties into into the government, into the cabinet. Mm. Um, yeah, so so um, yeah, how he handles that is is going to be a, a key factor, I think. Alex, the, the Taiwanese markets did pretty well last year, didn't they? The Taiex was up 24% overall in the year, one of the best performing markets in Asia and, and, and in the world. Why, why was that? Well, given that Taiwan is so dependent economically on the mainland and uh, the Chinese economy and Chinese markets haven't done anywhere near as well. Uh, I think that this is the AI boom. Uh, this is just like Korea. Uh, so... Um Actually, Taiwan uh, semiconductor industry is so important. So, uh, so this is uh, what supporting uh, what what's, what's supporting the, the overall market. But if you look at domestic company, I think uh, this is uh, another story. So, I think uh, overall this is an export oriented uh, in, uh, index. So um, that's why uh, it's not affected too much. Has Taiwan got to look for new areas of growth and, and develop economic ties elsewhere to reduce, try and reduce its dependency on the mainland? I mean, clearly, it can't reduce it down to zero. It's always going to have a big influence. But does it need to be looking elsewhere? Or is it looking elsewhere already? I think it is uh, looking to uh, boost the, the, the advantage in the manufacturing sector. So that is uh, what they have been doing. So uh, they are Quite good in 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 the in the semi uh, industry. So I think uh, the point is that uh, they 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 improve themselves in 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 its uh, manufacturing technologies uh, instead of looking for other markets. I think that's what mm. their strategy is. John, what's the way forward for for Taiwan from here? Um, yes, I think uh, pretty much uh, more of the same. Really, the the you know the strategic advantage they have with with uh, Taiwan Semiconductor and the rest of the the rest of the uh, the complex um, is, um, you know, that's their main defense, um, long term, you know, short term and, and long term, I think. So they will continue to um, try and keep their edge 
Okay. Well, we're going to talk about Taiwan more later on this show. In the meantime, let's move on to some other things because there's plenty of other stories uh, this morning to discuss. China's exports rose more than expected in December, uh, but failed to offset an overall decline last year amid a weakening global trade environment. The country's trade surplus was $823 billion for the year. Exports for all of 2023 were $3.4 trillion. That was down 4.6%. And it's the first annual drop since 2016. Imports also dropped 5.5%. In 2023, trade with the Asian bloc, which is China's largest trading partner as a whole, slipped almost 5%. And exports to the United States, they endured the steepest plunge in nearly 30 years, with total shipments falling by 13.1% compared to a year earlier, uh, to 500, just over 500 billion US dollars. And data also indicates that China's about to lose its position as the top exporting nation to the US uh, for the first time in, uh, in 17 years. Uh, Alex, what do you make of this uh, What data? What's behind this? Well, I think, first of all, of course, that this is uh, uh, what are the... the, the the manufacturers or the, or the buyers actually are looking elsewhere to diversify their risk. Mm. And then I think that the, the overall trend of uh, experience um, uh, spending over actual goods spending also uh, hurt a little bit on uh, goods manufacturing. So I think uh, both uh, have uh, some impact on these data. And I think the trend actually is there and there's like, not likely to be worse. So uh, we are lucky to see uh, Chinese uh, manufacturing sector to remain a little bit um, uh, in the downturn. And of course, the United States has wanted uh, this uh, this trade deficit uh, to to improve. That's what it's going to get, isn't it? By the looks of it. Yeah, of course. I think uh, uh, it's we're likely to see uh, they are looking elsewhere to 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 to, to source the goods. So I think uh, this is a trend that probably could continue, and the U- USA probably would like to see that. Yeah. John, what do you read into this? Um. Yes, nothing. Certainly, nothing new. Um, we've all seen we've seen this trend developing over the last um, couple of years, really. And um, uh, you know, there's there, there's a point where you know China can't really expand its market share anyway. Um, so it's it's really going to be dependent on overall you know global growth in trade, which is obviously soft um, mm-hmm. as to whether. You know the the China trade account can can uh, continue to expand um, in absolute terms, if not not in relative terms. Um, yes, I mean the big the big success story, if you like, is is this um, you know Mexico uh, becoming becoming now the you know the the main main source of new new investment um, in in offshore well near near shore um, manufacturing and and so on so. Um, Mexico's boom, uh, booming, and China's, uh, you know, slipping back a bit. And that's a long-term trend, do you think, as well? Yeah, I think so. Yes, I don't. I don't think it's uh, it's, it's not. It's clearly there is a cyclical element, as I said, from the from the global, uh, you know, global trade, um, the global economy. But um, underlying the, the 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 main the trend is is, is a long-term one. Yeah. Alex, what about um, vehicles? That was the one. Uh, that was the one outperformer. Shipments of automobiles jumped to almost seventy percent uh, in value terms and about fifty-seven percent in volume terms. Obviously, driven by the rapidly growing EV market, China's established itself as an EV manufacturing um, hub. 
Although this wasn't enough to offset the uh, the weakness in other export ca- categories, if it hadn't been for that, uh, this data would have been far worse. Yeah, I think uh, EV probably will still be the booming sector, but of course, uh, Europe and the US probably will try to do something on on tariff uh, to to curb the trend because um, they are too competitive. I think uh, Chinese actually are too strong in the index sector. I think uh, uh, the other parts of the world actually will be a little bit worried. So. Probably the EV uh, may be uh, good for some um, markets like uh, the Middle East or, or Africa or, or, or some parts of Europe, but I think uh, they will see some resistance uh, going forward because uh, uh, the manufacturing uh, in, in other parts of the world actually uh, would, 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 would like to see some resistance on that because Chinese actually are too strong on the, in this sector particularly. Mm, and it's not a very profitable business, is it, for many Chinese EV vehicles? Very cutthroat business, as we've seen last week. Tesla uh, cutting its prices again for its EVs um, on the mainland. That that's the, the the one problem, isn't it, with all of this? Yeah, there's the problem because the margin actually is so thin, and and then uh, the competition is uh, still very um, strong within China. So they are selling it at a very thin margin. So that's why the profit actually may not be too good, even though um, their products are good and and the price actually are very competitive. But I think uh, overall profit actually will not be that strong. John, are you surprised that some of the European um, EV makers like uh, like Volvo, like others, just don't seem to be able to compete in the Chinese market? Yeah, because uh, I think, uh, first of all, they they have the um, cost disadvantage. And then they are not. Uh, they do not have the early uh, early entrance advantage as well. Not like mm-hmm. Tesla. So I think that's why they are they are seeing uh, very a strong threats from Chinese com- competitors. John, what, are you yes, surprised? Uh- yeah, no, it's 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 very difficult for for the um, incumbents with their legacy products to really go all out, or has been proved to be to really go all out in the in the EV sector, um, which partly explains why Tesla's been so successful, uh, you know, as a, from a from a standing start, um, whereas um, you know, General Motors and Ford and so on are, are, are still as well in the US as well as the Europeans are finding it you know difficult to um difficult nowhere to you know place their bets really um i think an interesting uh, an interesting example is is what's happened in Japan with Toyota um who've actually taken the slightly opposite uh, slightly contrarian view and said well actually hybrid is really what what uh, what most people want at the moment that's where the demand is so Toyota have been, uh, you know, been pretty successful. Mm. Um, but yes, the, the the situation in China, where where we see it yet again, we've seen it in many other industries, where you know the overcapacity just just is is allowed to develop or is a, enabled to develop, but because the cost of capital is 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 too low, um, they you know they don't have they can get access to bank loans or whatever. Um, uh, more or less freely, and so so you have how many is it? Two hundred different <laughs> firms manufacturing EVs <laughs> in China. I mean, it's it's just it's chaotic in in a sense. So it's not really the Chinese uh, governments yeah. that's subsidising these EV manufacturers; it's the markets. Uh, yes, in fact, yeah, and that's why one of the re- one of the reasons why the the, the stock markets uh, is, is so weak. 
Well, also, we had some uh, consumer price data as well from the mainland. The country recorded an inflation rate of minus 0.3% compared with minus 0.5% in November. It's also a softer fall compared with the 0.4% expected by economists. Still, China's consumer prices down for the third straight month. China's economy was hit by deflation in July, and prices have since then been flat or falling in every month except August. Alex, what's it going to take to get China out of deflation? Well, I think it's very difficult right now because uh, the spiral actually has begun. And then um, Chinese brand actually, as I was discussed earlier, that um, the um, they, they like to cut price to compete. And I think uh, this one of uh, price cut uh, competition actually has started. So fairly likely we are con- we will see continue to see the deflation. And then the overall expectations of the economy actually is, uh, is quite bad because of the uh, uh, property market. So I think uh, uh, those um, uh, retail operators actually are likely to, to, to pressure the price uh, to remain competitive. So I think uh, the deflation expectation actually is built in. So uh, this, is very likely to, this is very unlikely to reverse. And economists have been talking about the government needing to act, otherwise it's going to fall into a negative spiral. From what you just said, it, it sounds like you think it already has started to fall into this negative spiral. Yeah, yeah, because uh, uh, the, the, I think uh, the world actually is uh, in a natural deflationary force because of the, uh, the advance uh, in technologies. And also in China, uh, there are so many competitions uh, within every sector. So that's why I think... Uh, uh, this is already in the downward uh, spiral, and that is very unlikely to change. John, how serious is that? Um, yeah, it's very serious. I, I totally agree with that, Alex. Just said how how what I mean. We see it now almost every day. The the, the new uh, new data tells us that in every sector across the. Um, Across the board, you know, it's it, it is um, it's becoming self self reinforcing almost. Um, the you know the problem of debt. Um, I see the debt figures are still going up. Um, you know, quite a lot. So so I mean, they can't just keep uh, keep trying to trying to push out more more um, more loans and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and they're being targeted in the wrong direction anyway, or being targeted to um, to manufacturing and infrastructure. Um, you know, we've got plenty of infrastructure, and we've got plenty of um, asset, you know, fixed assets in in the manufacturing sector. Um, you know, what's it, it's got? They've got to try and re, um, revive consumer demand. That's it's a demand side problem, not a supply side problem, and all the measures. So far, I'm basically towards supply increasing supply rather than, mm. rather than in, increasing demand. So, at, at the cost of um, increasing debt as well, isn't it? Because it looks like um, China's debt to GDP ratio is heading for about three hundred percent. Yes, that's uh, that's uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that that particular figure is is also worrying. So we're. we're the deleveraging um, hasn't really started. Although it's you know I see one or two signs where a couple of um, Bankruptcies and restructurings have been uh, have been approved by the courts. Um, you know that's a bit of a start, but that that um, that also has got to you know until we see what happens with the likes of Evergrande, um, you know that issue is also looming large. 
Okay, Alex, just before we finish, can I get your thoughts on uh, the markets? Uh, the the high, high, highlight, really, or the story of Asian markets uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, Japanese stocks continuing to rally. They're at a new 33-year high. The Nikkei up uh, over 6%, almost 7% last week. Indian markets are at a new record high. Uh, but the CSI 300 on the mainland down at a near a five-year uh, five low. This is just continuing the trend, really, isn't it, that we saw in 2022? What, what do you think is the outlook? I think uh, just stick with the trend. Uh, Japan and India probably would continue to have a strong momentum, especially Japan. Japan has uh, been in a very huge consolidation for quite some time, and uh, we just seen the breakout after the new year. So very likely, I think Japan would uh, still be quite bullish. And then the India actually is uh, still a uh, demographic story, and I think people like that. Uh, and for Chinese, I think uh, it is very likely to underperform uh, we have uh, Baidu uh, just down around 7 to 8% uh, on last Friday. Again, a single day uh, decline on basically nothing new. Uh, so I think uh, this is uh, uh, still hurting the uh, investor sentiment because it still looks very risky to, to buy individual Chinese stocks. And overall, I think uh, uh, people are expecting uh, a weak uh, demographic situation and high debt and also deflationary problem. These three these elements actually would continue to pressure Chinese markets. So until those uh, those forces are reversed, despite the fact that Chinese stocks must surely be looking very, very cheap now, um, you, you're not going to see any signs of a turnaround or you're not forecasting any turnaround? Yeah, I think uh, right now the latest problem is uh, the, uh, the the worry of a uh, price cut competitions uh, within uh, uh, cons- consumption sector. Mm-hmm. So um, if if we are seeing seeing that kind of a uh, price cuts, uh, uh, that means uh, we are seeing a probably a huge decline in profits uh, from those uh, retailers. So that's why I think uh, it's still too risky. Although it looks cheap, but if this is this is uh, uh, calculated on the old number. If the margin being cut by a huge uh, amount, then that means uh, they are not that cheap as actually. So I think uh, this kind of worry would still be there because of the deflationary expectations. John, are you tempted to take a contrarian view at all? Um, afraid not, at least not yet. Um, I mean, hopefully something will happen, you know, maybe later this year that will will um, will cause uh, you know some some sort of inflection inflection point but um there are so many issues out there um you know you need a sort of decisive um sort of decisive uh game-changing event of some kind to 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 change sentiment um you know the opposite of which we've seen in we're now seeing in in japan where finally um of course, it, it partly to do with, uh, with positioning and fund flows. Suddenly, the whole world has cottoned on to the fact that you know the Japanese market is uh, is is the place to be. So, so in, again, that's a, a self-reinforcing um, uh, rise rather than decline. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's quite ironic to look at the charts and you see the Nikkei climbing at a, climbing at a forty-five degree angle and and the mm-hmm. the, the, the CSI 300, whatever, d- declining at the s- same sort of angle. Um, and the two are clearly connected. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, we're seeing you know, um, 
seeing the launch of uh, launch of, of funds uh, in in uh, in Europe and, and the US, which are specifically you know Asia ex China and, and emerging markets ex China. Um, uh, so so um, a series of announcements from uh, you know chief investment officers and US pension funds how they're you know allocating less to China or pulling out of China and that trend has also been going on of course for most of the last year but um you know we get we come into a new year and, and those trends tend to get accelerated or extrapolated at least in at least in the early uh, you know the early moves by investors well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. Great uh, to hear your views and have a great week. You heard there John Schofield, who is Managing Director of Tempest Investments, Alex Wong, who is Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Yanem Wu, who is the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. Morning, Yanem. Good morning, Peter. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you too. Let's start over in Taiwan with the uh, the election there. Um, as we heard earlier in the show, Taiwanese voters have chosen the DPP's William Lai as their president. Um, he won uh, an unprecedented third consecutive presidential term for his party with about 40% of the vote. But the DPP lost its majority in the island's legislature with the opposition gaining ground there, although no one party won overall control of parliament. Um, Yanan, how, first of all, how significant is this election, both for Taiwan and also for, for China and the US as well? Yeah, uh, I think this uh, election, the message is clear. Uh, first, uh, the power come to balance. As just mentioned, the parliament uh, legislature has uh, three parties and uh, DPP lost first first time uh, the majority that's made has need to control 57 seats. Uh, so Democratic Progress Party control 51 seats and Kuomintang uh, win 52 seats, uh, the larger uh, party in the parliament and legislature. And uh, we can see the uh, TPP also won eight seats. And so I think that's the first message. The second message, of course, uh, uh, the TPP represent the middle part of the election, electoral votes, uh, especially the younger generation, the Gen Z. Uh, so uh, we see Ko, Mr. Ko Wenjie, uh, the TPP uh, Taiwan People's Party leader, uh, just, uh, you know, a very approachable among the generally Z and young people and a very good image. So that shows the uh, the middle stream, uh, the younger generation uh, trying to make a voice in the uh, uh, political uh, progress, uh, uh, the environment in Taiwan. And so so I think uh, this, uh, this will be interesting phenomenon for the first time. Uh, the uh, that the younger generation want to make a voice, uh, you know, in, in the political stage. So that w- we could uh, continue to monitor and watch and see how that evolves. The third message, of course, uh, Mr. William Lai, the Democratic Progress Party, won the election, you know, f- you know, first time in you know, since uh, independent election started in 1996, won, uh, you know, a consecutive three terms, you know, uh, the first party who can win beyond two terms. So that's also show it still have uh, uh, the majority in the uh, uh, Taiwanese uh, in, uh, the uh, elections uh, environment. 
and also Mr. William Tai uh, is also grassrooted compared to uh, Ms. Tsai Ying-wen, who is more uh, is from establishment or the so-called political elites uh, from the last generation. Uh, you know, the Mr. William uh, Lai and uh, Xiao Meiqin, his, her, his vice, uh, you know, uh, presidential partner, uh, also both uh, very, uh, you know, uh, principle-driven and also uh, very grassroots. So they may more, make more radical uh, 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 probably moves uh, compared to Miss uh, Ms. Tsai from the last generation who is more from election, uh, the establishment. So that's a three message, I think, uh, uh, I would say mixed, uh, but also very clear from this election. And how has China reacted to the messages from this election? Yeah, I think China also, uh, you know, Taiwan uh, Affairs Office make a very clear statement, uh, of course, uh, trying to, uh, you know, to to contain any, uh, you know, uh, message for uh, pro-independence, especially Mr. Lai seems a very unapproachable person. Uh, even you know less approachable than Mr. Tsai Tsai from the last uh, leadership. So as just men- as I just mentioned, it's from the grassroots, from the street, smart uh, sort of. So 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 it may take uh, you know unconventional uh, play unconventional cars. So I think uh, the Ch- mainland government is very cautious, very cautious uh, for any uh, you know move uh, from you know, the new leadership. And also give a very clear message, you know, it's, uh, you know, that uh, uh, the uh, unification is still the only solution. And uh, and also has to uh, show a very strong message from the military part. Mm. Uh, but we also want to see, you know, Chinese military uh, of senior official leader met with the U.S. counterparts just prior to election in Washington, in Pentagon. So both sides, uh, both China and U.S. want to have a common consensus, you know, keep the current uh, status quo is probably the beneficial for the both streets, the two sides from the streets and also for the world. Uh, so that's why I think President Biden also said, uh, you know, it doesn't want, it doesn't support independence for Taiwan. Mm. In in his acceptance speech, William Lai w- was quite conciliatory, wasn't he? He said he was open to dialogue with the Thai, uh, with the uh, mm. with the Chinese government, the mainland Chinese government, and he felt that that was the best way forward and will be a, a yeah. sort of a win win for both sides. Do you think mm-hmm. uh, Beijing will accept uh, that offer and, and maybe change its approach? Because since the DPP came to power, um, Beijing's refused yeah. to really um, has cut all communications with with Taiwan's government. Do you think maybe it will change its approach now, given the message from this election and William Lai's offer to open dialogue? Yeah, I guess uh, for any political leaders, uh, it's really uh, probably they talk in one way prior to election and what they do is more important after they're taking the leadership. So that's probably the same for any political leaders. So William Time, I think, uh, chose a uh, rather... Uh, less confrontational uh, stance after elections. He said only dialogue and exchange can reduce the risk of conflict, uh, like just mentioned. And he also said we must replace encirclement with exchanges and confrontation with dialogue in order to achieve peace and co 
prosperity. So, so I think uh, that at least show a good uh, gesture from uh, his side. Uh, so I think uh, for the mainland government has to probably to uh, to analyze what uh, his uh, action policy uh, policies and also the moves. Uh, you know whether the uh, the DPP really interested in dialogue. Uh, or uh, want to promote uh, further exchanges uh, between the two sides of the uh, the, the, the strict. Uh, and yeah, because especially the economic benefit uh, for uh, after a mainland market open to Taiwan, so Taiwan beneficial a lot, uh, whether it's from uh, agriculture or semiconductor, other high tech. Uh, you know, uh, in production chain. So that's the economic benefit. So I think uh, for the interest of a Taiwanese economy, uh, how to maintain a, a, a dialogue and also keep the dialogue door open is very essential. Uh, otherwise, uh, probably the, uh, the both sides can, you know, be hurt by the economic, uh, uh, you know, sanctions or any, uh, you know, encirclement. So I think that's uh, we have to monitor that. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you about China's economy because we've had quite a bit of data out uh, at the end of last week. First of all, on the trade front, Chinese exports, they rose more than expected in December, but they didn't offset the overall decline in 2023. What was really stood out? Uh, from this uh, data uh, was exports to the United States, the steepest plunge in nearly 30 years. Shipments fell over 13% um, compared to a year earlier. Is, is that a, a long-term trend, do you think, now? Yeah, uh, the exports probably the the one area that's the most hurt in 2023 for China in terms of GDP contribution. As you just indicated, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, uh, probably from the U.S. side, China is about to lose its position in, as a U.S. top exporting nation. Uh, to U.S. for the first time in 17 years. Mm. And overall, uh, for China, the exports for all of the year, you know, was uh, U.S. Uh, 3.4 trillion U.S. dollar. And that's uh, further down, you know, 4.6% from 2022. And that's the first annual drop since 2016. The F, uh, the M, uh, the imports also dropped, you know, five point five percent to some twenty three. So especially the trade with Asian bloc, the Asian region, China's largest trading partner for the last three years as a whole, uh, slipped four point nine percent year on year, and so it's, so that's uh, uh, also. Uh, a, a, a very soft tone for China's export. Uh, so, uh, so I think overall the global demand, uh, you know, reduce uh, after the U.S. hike rate. Uh, so that uh, suppress, you know, domestic demand in uh, developed nations and also in other developing nations. So that's, uh, you know, affect U.S. Uh, China's uh, uh, exports. Uh, secondly, uh, the production chain will force to, you know, move outside China. You know, after U.S. sanction trade, uh, uh, you know, off, uh, policies such as nearshore and uh, friendly shore policies, so so that force, uh, you know, some production move out of China. Uh, so so I think uh, both uh, these factors contribute 
uh, a softer tone for China's uh, exports. Uh, for Chinese GDP, the investment, the three so-called trail cars, the investment uh, led, uh, uh, you know, activities uh, was softer because the property market is still uh, in the cooling down period. Mm-hmm. And also domestic consumption seems to uh, you know, have not been revived, although it has improved quite a uh, you know, significantly compared to 2022, but hasn't recovered uh, you know, to the 2019 uh, prior to COVID level. Uh, so, so I think uh, from that aspect, exports sleeping, uh, you know, uh, contribute to more uh, or affect more on Chinese GDP. Yeah. And of course, the other problem is that uh, China is still in deflation. It recorded an inflation rate of minus 0.3% uh, from the month um, earlier. China's economy has been hit by deflation in July, it's, and prices have been flat or falling every month apart from August. How big a problem is this? Yeah, domestically, uh, China is, uh, you know, under this, uh, you know, big uh, deflation of pressure. Uh, you know, you just mentioned about CPI. The uh, the the CPI is uh, uh, was um, you know minus point three percent in December, and that's uh, you know for three for three third straight months. So three mm-hmm. months in a row, CPI was in negative. Uh, uh, the territory since, and that's uh, the longest streak of decline since 2009. You know, after the 2008 financial global financial crisis, so so that's exp- extending more deflation pressure, especially for PPI. You know, uh, you know PPI has been, uh, you know, was minus uh, three uh, three three uh, percent. Uh, for the whole year 2023, and that's uh, you know 15 months, 15 months uh, negative uh, territory for PPI. So, and the, both CPI and PPI has uh, been negative for the past three months. So, so I think uh, whether it's from a consumer side and or from a manufacturing side, uh, you know that uh, uh, shows the demand is really social demand is really. Uh, not uh, sufficient to support uh, the uh, the uh, the defl- uh, to hedge the the deflation of pressure. So so I think that's one thing is about uh, the consumer desire has not been back yet. So there still we heard about uh, uh, you know laying off in some uh, sectors and also the uh, the property market hurting the. The wealth allocation, uh, the uh, for the consumer side, so so they tend to save more and even you know pay back mortgage mm-hmm. if they have excess cash. Try to reduce leverage uh, from uh, uh, household side. And secondly, from uh, manufacturing side, we have see uh, PMI. You know, uh, the national PMI was uh, you know uh, also uh, forty nine. Uh, 0.0 and stay in that contraction mode uh, in December. So, so I think the manufacturing side is still showing uh, the uh, demand from the production side is also uh, on the weak side. And especially uh, if you look at the inventory data for the manufacturing uh, sector, the, the inventory is still uh, decreasing in December. So that shows uh, the economy still, uh, the 
uh, in the destocking mode, uh, destocking mode rather than restocking. So, so I think that's also showed the weak demand. Is, is there a risk that? Production. Sorry, is, is there a risk that yeah, China's going to fall into a deflationary spiral like Japan did back at the beginning of the 1990s, or has it already started to fall into that spiral? Yeah, indeed, uh, that's a concern from uh, many economists and also from the uh, industrial side. Uh, so, uh, so how do you, you know, uh, you know, bring down the deflation pressure and how to revive the confidence is probably more important now. Uh, that's why I think the government, uh, you know, issued one trillion uh, RMB, you know, the the special bonds, trying to inject more cash and just recently last month the PSL uh, the uh, from the People's Bank of China PBOC about 300 billion 35 uh, 350 billion also uh, action to inject more cash trying to uh, uh, let the economic system have more liquidity to bring in more liquidity uh, to uh, to reduce this deflation pressure. But I think, the relatively speaking, that uh, we need to take a long-term uh, uh, approach uh, because uh, one is uh, the aging society. Secondly, uh, you know, all the, uh, the the demand uh, side has to be, uh, you know, bring back more confidence mm-hmm. uh, from the consumer and also from the private enterprise. So, so I think that's relatively longer term, uh, especially uh, for uh, for the. Uh, a global demand, whether this is, uh, you know, uh, demand can uh, bring back after U.S. Uh, high high rating cycle, is also another external factor. Mm-hmm. So both domestically, internally, and also global demand from uh, externally, has to both, uh, you know, uh, to uh, bring down this deflation uh, pressure. Overall. Okay. Yeah. Well, Yan, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much indeed for your insights this morning. Thank you, Peter. That's Yan Wu, who is the chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is director of Cyrus Consulting Research over in Taipei. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Um, let me get your thoughts first of all on the uh, on the Taiwanese election. Uh, of course, I mean one thing that really uh, stood out actually on, on on the election over the weekend is Taiwan may be one of the youngest democracies in the world, but it knows how to organise an election, doesn't it? It really was a very smooth, um, incredibly effective process. Everyone who wanted to vote got to vote. The uh, the count was transparent and uh, and fast, and um, you know the the candidates, the losing candidates, all conceded very quickly without any problems. There's a few lessons for other parts of the world there. And they did that all with paper ballots, not not a very uh, high-tech method of voting. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, you know, they have an election uh, for various levels of government here, and there's a lot of experience with holding elections. There was even uh, a polling station in an MTR station here in Taipei, uh, which I was quite surprised to see, but uh, making it efficient for uh, the eligible voters to come out and vote. Okay, well, let's talk about the results. As we know, uh, William Lai um, is, is president-elect. The DPP won a third consecutive term, but they lost control of the uh, the legislature. So how big a problem is that for them? 
Well, in, in a word, that's going to be chaos because uh, he doesn't he won't have a majority. So uh, not only will it be difficult for the executive branch to get any uh, new laws uh, approved or revisions to existing laws uh, through the legislative UN, which is the formal name of, of the parliament here, uh, but also the, they could call in the ministers for interpolation sessions and make their life very difficult, uh, kind of like question time over in the UK. Uh, so. I, I expect to see a lot of chaos, as I said, a lot of hijinks, a lot of grandstanding by members of the uh, two opposition parties that combined have a larger number of seats than the DPP has. Uh, and, and just back to, to Lai's victory, uh, we have to keep in mind that he only won uh, because it's it's uh, a first-past-the-post system. There's no second round. There's no runoff. So he won with 40%. So 60%. Uh, which was split between two opposition candidates, uh, but 60% did not vote for Lai. So he's been, he's going to become president with only 40%. That's not really what I would be comfortable calling a mandate. It might be a man or it might be a date, but it's not a mandate. Mm. And it makes you wonder then, Bashuni, what would have happened had the uh, the KMT um and the uh, and the and the smaller TPP actually done this deal that they were talking about last year to go and run on a joint ticket. It could have been a very different result, presumably. I, I think everyone uh, assumes that it, it wouldn't be sixty forty. It would have been a lot closer. But uh, all, all indication is is that a joint opposition ticket would have been victorious. But they couldn't make a deal, and now we're going to have President Lai for four years. And is there a, a way in which the TPP could be brought on board here? to help uh, the, the DPP? Is there some way in which maybe they could be given some senior positions in the government or in the legislature um, and, and, and try and bring yeah, them into the There's been a lot of speculation fold? about that. A lot of speculation about that since Saturday night. Uh, I think it's very unlikely. And even if it happens, it will probably fall apart with, within a short period of time. There's a lot of bad blood between Ko Wenjia, the chairman of the Taiwan People's Party, who ran for president, and the Democratic Progressive Party. Uh, they endorsed him for Taipei mayor in 2014. They did not endorse him when he ran for re-election re in 2018. And the, the DPP uh, and its army of online warriors uh, or friendly media to the DPP, they've been merciless in their criticism of Ko Wenjia over the past few years. So I think it would be very, very difficult to bring the TPP into government. Government and, and the trade-off there would have to be TPP support in the parliament. And I, I just don't see that as, as, as really something that could be sustained. And what is the message from the voters here? Uh, people have been talking about, you know, this sends a signal that uh, there's a long-term decline in sort of perceived kinship with China, if, if you like. What, how do you see the message from the voters here? I, I think voters were uh, kind of frustrated by this election because, again, we had a, a desire. It's pretty clear there was a desire by a majority not to uh, reelect the DPP, but the majority couldn't make a deal. Uh, sorry, the opposition failed to reach a deal on a joint ticket. And that frustration will continue because the president was elected with only 40 percent of, of the vote. Uh, when it comes to China issues, I think, again, 40 percent. They, they want the hard line 
uh, you know, we're not really going to look to talk to China for for the sake of talking. We're not going to agree to the so-called 1992 consensus under which uh, each side says there's one China, but the mainland calls it People's Republic of China and Taiwan calls it the Republic of China. Uh, you know, the, the Kuomintang, had they won or the TPP probably would have looked to resurrect some level of dialogue with China. And again, it seems that the majority would have been okay for that. with that. The majority was was not for lie, uh, but that's what we're going to get. We're going to get uh, you know, tying when 3.0, as some people call it, when it comes to China policy. But William Lai, he did make quite a conciliatory acceptance speech, didn't he, towards China. He held out an olive branch. He was saying that, you know, he would love to have dialogue uh, with China and he was open um, to that. Um, what does China, how does China react to that? Uh, yeah, it's a fair point. And, and a lot of people notice the conciliatory remarks towards China. But ultimately, and China's reaction to this, it comes down to this so-called 92 consensus. And if a lie, lie administration is not going to have the 92 consensus as the basis of its China policy, then China is not going to talk to him. And not only will China not talk to him, but we're going to see a lot of the same things that China has done the last eight years to put pressure on Taiwan. Military exercises, some trade retaliatory measures, uh, possibly persuading countries that still have diplomatic relations with Taiwan to switch those relations to China and keeping Taiwan uh, out of international organizations. But the problem is none of that has worked really, has it, for China out in the past eight years? Taiwan has resisted all of that. Taiwanese voters, despite everything that China has said and done, um, you know, has has um, sort of turned to the DPP. And, and so- that's why that and that's why looking at this from China's perspective, they don't renounce the use of force to bring about unification. Uh, they don't say. Uh, this will only be a peaceful process to, to unify. They, they want it. They say they want it to be a, a peaceful process, but they don't renounce the use of force. And I think that's why, uh, you know, they say other things ha- haven't worked. Military pressure hasn't worked. Uh, having better relations for eight years when, when President Ma was in office, that really hasn't uh, caused people in Taiwan to eagerly want to unify with China either. Uh, that's why they, they still have the, the option to use the military to force unification. And as I like to say, people here in Taiwan, whether that's the, the civilian leadership, the military leadership, or the corporate world leadership, they have to take that threat very seriously. But presumably China also has to think very carefully about whether it wants to go down that route because the costs for China will be pretty catastrophic as well. Surely they wouldn't want to go down that, the, the route of war, would they, over this? I don't think it's imminent, but again, they retain this option. And not only is is that a verbal statement that they retain the option, they're obviously investing massive amounts of money in military as well as defense R&D, practicing amphibious landings, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they they are preparing for it. Uh, So they clearly, uh, they mean it when they say we don't exclude it. So again, maybe it's not something that's imminent, uh, but uh, if we go through a few more elections where uh, the DPP continues to win, then it might become more imminent. So how do you, how do you see relations between Taiwan and China um, developing now? Are, are we going to have a period of calm or do you think we should need to prepare for some more, uh, a more turbulent phase in, in relationships uh, across the Taiwan Straits? 
well, if if there's going to be more turbulent times as, as opposed to calm times, there's probably going to be some trigger actions that cause that. I'll give you an example. If uh, Taiwan's outgoing president transits the U.S. again, or after May 20th, if William Lai transits the U.S. and he meets prominent politicians, or if prominent politicians from the U.S., like the Speaker of the House, visit us here in Taiwan again, they, they, that would be a trigger point. If a Trump administration is is elected again this November in the U.S., I, I think a, a Trump foreign policy or a Trump China team, they're going to give Taiwan a lot more leeway to do things that might annoy China, whereas I think the Biden administration, uh, they give Taiwan less leeway than a Trump administration would. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, Taiwan's representative office in Washington, D.C., as as in many places around the world, is called the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office. Taiwan wants to change that to be the Taiwan Economic and Cultural Representative Office. A Trump administration might very well do that, and then there would be a harsh reaction from, from China. And what about this U.S. delegation that's heading towards Taiwan right now. I'm, I'm not sure maybe they've even arrived, but um, uh, is that likely to be a trigger point for China? Probably not, because these are all former somethings. They're, they're pe- they are people who previously served in government, but are not in government right now. And Biden has sent this kind of delegation to Taiwan every year uh, since the Biden administration took office. So we're used to seeing this. Uh, and I think the fact that they're all former somethings, they're not currently in government, it, it probably means uh, China will, will make some angry statements, but not necessarily take any action specifically in response to this delegation. And what does this mean then for US-China relations going forward? Well, the Biden administration seemed to have wanted to make some some positive uh, changes in the relationship. And we've seen that in the months after they met in, in San Francisco on the sidelines of the APEC uh, summit. Uh, but again, if, if there's any actions that the Biden administration takes that uh, anger China, then China, China will just simply cut off some of those bilateral dialogue mechanisms. And they, it's clear the Biden administration doesn't want that to happen. That's why I say the Biden administration They give Taiwan some leeway, but not as much leeway as a Trump administration would give Taiwan. Mm. And and going forward, what does uh, Taiwan do now? Clearly, it can't totally cut itself off from mainland China economically. Its its economy is tied in uh, with the mainland. But at the same time, it is already trying to find new markets, isn't it? New areas of, of business. Does it continue down that path? Sure. The mainland is is the largest export market for for Taiwan at the moment, and it's very difficult to change that in a material way. But what we have seen and something investors should be looking at or talking to Taiwan companies about, as you mentioned, uh, some expansion in India, and that's in response to Apple's demand to Foxconn and the, and the supply chain to manufacture more handsets in India. And we've also seen the U.S. pressure for reshoring or friendshoring and, and, and the highlighting example of that is TSMC building its fabs in, in Arizona. Uh, but TSMC is also building in Japan. They're also building in Germany. So one thing to watch would be how much pressure from the United States, Japan, or Europe is made on the Taiwan government or Taiwan industry, especially the high-tech industry, to diversify manufacturing locations. Uh, we're, we're almost at capacity for building these kinds of facilities here in Taiwan. We do have a land, a land shortage. Uh, so there, the, then the option becomes the United States, Japan, or Europe 
we're going to see some more of that in the coming years. And William Lai did specifically mention Taiwan's semiconductor sector, didn't he? He said he was going to continue to assist the sector. He said China and other countries must also cherish uh, Taiwan's role in the global chip industry. Yeah, but I don't think that that's going to matter much when China feels that they have to respond to things like a House of Representatives speaker visiting Taiwan or uh, any formal actions that, that change the name or the constitution of Taiwan. I mean, the, the fact that the semiconductor industry is here is not going to stop Taiwan, uh, sorry, stop China if and when China feels that Taiwan has crossed a red line. Ross, thank you very much. Good to hear your insights on that. That's Ross Feingold, who is Director of Cyrus Consulting Research over in Taiwan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Will Denyer, US economist at Gavacal, and our US correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 